Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. And turn to Numbers chapter 12. As we continue our study in the book of Numbers, Sibling Rivalry is the title of today. As we consider this wonderful book, I know it's a book that's new to many of us. We've seen it, we've heard of it, but we haven't always gotten deep into it. But what you can see is there's many things that is important here in the book of Numbers. Let me ask you, do you ever look at someone and wish that you had what they had? Have you ever looked at it and said, man, I, I just wish I was as tall as they were, had as much hair as they had. Or I wish I, I had their strength or their job. Maybe it's their, their car, their spouse, their career, money, physical characteristics. Are you one of those people that takes such a dislike to someone, someone's talent and someone's popularity that you celebrate when they fail? I remember that. You know, people just couldn't wait to see Michael Jordan fail. You know, we can't wait to see a Kobe fail. There's, there's that type of thing where we look at him and say, I just hope they fail. Yet I wonder how attuned are we to the way in which we envy someone and we compare ourselves to others and wish that we had what they had. Not that we may be equals, but that we could take what they have. Last week, we read of the dangers of a complaining attitude. We learn that a complaining attitude is a direct charge against God's character and will lead others to sin and exasperate those who lead and love you and eventually will bring God's judgment. We also learn that the three keys to combat this complaining, this moaning and grumbling attitude is to rejoice with, is to rejoice with contentment, to pray for strength to fight our fleshly strong cravings, and to give thanks to God for all of his good gifts in all circumstances. Today, as we open up to Numbers chapter 12, we're to consider the contrast between pride and meekness in God's children. Now, as we look at chapters 11 and 12, there are three protests that we saw. We saw two of them last week. The first one is the protest about their misfortunes, their, the monotony of travel, their complaining. The second one was their, their uh, protest or their complaining about a craving, a craving for food and for the things that they left in Egypt. Today, the protest, the complaining, the moaning that we're going to see in chapter 12, is that of Moses' leadership. So with that, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this book. It's a precious book. It too is the word of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and is training instructions in righteousness. So let's open up our minds and hearts. May your spirit work freely as we consider the life of Moses and his brother and sister. Father, as we consider the revelation of who God is and who Christ is, Father, that we may glorify you and that we may respond to the Holy Spirit's work as we examine our own lives in reflection of Numbers chapter 12. We thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to give you four observations about this passage. So if you're taking notes, they'll be up here on the monitor. I want you to grab them because then we're going to take them and say, what does this have 
to do with us. So the first observation is we're going to see that jealousy rears its ugly head. And jealousy is an ugly head. And it rears itself up in the first verse of Numbers chapter 12. So look at that with me if you would. And again, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you don't have one, let me know. I'll give you a free copy of God's Word. We want to have you have one of those. So first we see in chapter 12 verse 1. It reads, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And we read, and the Lord heard it. Now, Miriam and Aaron complained because Moses married a Cushite woman. Now, whether this is Zipporah or not, his wife who was from Midia, we're not really sure. Cushite is, a, is, a, is the area of Ethiopia. And at times in scripture, Midian, which is across really the Red Sea from Ethiopia, sometimes it, con- it, it, it conveyed both of those areas. So we're not sure if this is if Zipporah had died and he had remarried or if he just took another wife. Whatever the reason, they're complaining about their sister-in-law. And now I know none of you can understand this at all. None of you complain about your sister-in-law. I have the most wonderful sister-in-law in the whole world. However, their complaint really is a smokescreen for what's really bothering them, what's really sticking in their crawl, what's really bugging them. Their real complaint is, why is Moses so special? What is unique about him? You see, they're claiming to be equal with Moses. At the surface now, this, this surface, this, this claim to be equal does have some merit. Moses was their younger brother, and they too were used by God to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt and to lead them into the promised land. The prophet Micah, who would prophesy 400 and something years or longer, actually, through the power of the Holy Spirit, writes in his prophecy, when God says, For I brought you, speaking to the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now, we don't know exactly what Miriam's role was. We know that Moses was the leader. Aaron was his spokesperson. Now, you might recall that after Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea, that maybe Miriam's responsibility more had to do with the praise and the worship. For when we read there, it says that Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron and Moses, who took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her in the tambourine and dancing, singing, say, sing to the Lord, For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. But not only that, if you turn back real quickly, hold your your finger there in Numbers 12, but turn back real quickly to Exodus chapter 2. And in Exodus chapter 2, or for those of you who have seen Prince of Egypt, you may understand this story that Moses actually owes his very life to his sister. He owns his very life to his older sister. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 1, we see that the, when you might recall that Pharaoh said that all, child, all boy uh, male children two years and under or, or at birth, excuse me, were to be destroyed, were to be killed. But we see here in 2.1 that a man from the house of Levi went and took a, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived she bore a son and she saw that he was a fine child and she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him any longer, 
She took him in a basket, made of bulrushes and dubbed it with bitumen and pitch. You remember this story, right? She, paid, uh, she put the child in it and she placed it among the reeds by the river. But look at verse four. And his sister, this is Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to the baby. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young men walked beside her. They, she saw the basket, she reached for it, and the baby was crying when she opened it. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. But in verse 7, look again. Then his sister went to Pharaoh's daughter and said, well, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you. The, the princess is not going to nurse the child. She wouldn't be able to. She's not a mother. She wouldn't have been able to give the baby nourishment. So her sister, his sister, thinking quickly, seeing that he's in a safe place, says, should I go get one of the Hebrew women to do the job for you? For that's what they would have done. And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And look what it says. So the girl went and called her own mother. So Moses' mother actually wound up nourishing him and raising him during those early years of her life. Why? Because his sister looked out for him and made sure that they had contact with him. He truly owed his life to his sister. However, as you and I come to Numbers chapter 12, she and Aaron are not too happy with their assigned roles here in Israel. It seems that by listing Miriam before Aaron, which is different because Aaron's the older brother, it points out that she most likely was the instigator of this whole shenanigans. His siblings' complaint, Moses' siblings' complaint, is found in verse 2. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us. This complaint might have to do with the 70 men from chapter 11. We didn't really go over it, but God called 70 men of elders and said, these men too, I will give my spirit so that they may prophesy and bear the burden with Moses. Remember, he complained and said, these people are too much for me. So whether it had to do with that, we do not know. We don't know what the circumstances that led them to this protest, this complaining of the preeminence of, 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 of Moses. But the attitude behind it is very clear. Jealousy. Jealousy rears its ugly head of the two siblings against their younger brother. They were jealous of the prestige and the power and the preeminence that Moses enjoyed in the eyes of Israel and from his role with the father. Using their sister-in-law as cover, they begin to voice their displeasure. And like the last chapter, we see the writer records that the Lord heard it. And what we see is he responds, which leads to the second observation, which is God calls a family meeting in verse 4. God calls a family meeting. Look at verse 4. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of the meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent. And he called Aaron and, Aaron and Miriam, excuse me, and they both came forward. Now, understanding the danger, jealousy, and envy can bring among God's people. God quickly intervenes in this situation and he brings all three of them into the tabernacle. Again, we read of the majesty and the mystery of, of God as he comes in a pillar of cloud. 
Now, from my own experience, I can imagine the enormous pit in their stomach as they're called out for their complaining and their protest. Could you imagine too? Hey, come here. We need to sit down and have a talk. Don't you just love those words? Oh, oh, could you stay after work? I'd like to talk to you for a moment. You know, all of a sudden you think, okay, what have I done wrong? Or when someone comes, you know, we need to sit and talk. Well, this is a, a family meeting and God is calling them and to bring into them what's going on. It brings us to the third. The third observation is God himself is going to vindicate Moses with a ringing endorsement. We see this in verse 2. We skipped it first. But in verse 2, we read that Moses doesn't even seem to plead his case with him. He doesn't try to argue with him or say, hey, what's wrong, brother and sister? No, that's not what he does. In verse 3, we read this about him. Now, the man Moses was very meek. Or in the, yeah, it was verse 3. I'm sorry, not verse 2. But in verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now, this is Moses, the deliverer of the children of Israel, the one who, who, who faced Pharaoh and through the power of God defeated him, the one who parted the Red Sea, the one whose staff can turn you into a snake and do all sorts of wondrous things. It says he was a meek man. Instead, he relies not on his own arguments or validation but he relies on the divine validation as God testifies that Moses is not like other prophets he doesn't give them dream or he gives them dreams and visions but Moses has a divine CPR relationship with God in other words he speaks mouth-to-mouth communication with the almighty creator of the universe look at verse 6 and God said hear my words If there is a prophet among you, speaking of those 70 men, 70 elders, I, the Lord myself, make known to him in a vision. This is what we see with uh, with the others, Jacob and and Abraham and others. I speak with him in in a dream, but not so, he says in verse 7, with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him, he says in verse 8, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of God. So as you and I go through the prophets, the major and the minor prophets, it's through dreams, it's through visions, it's through other things that God speaks. But here we see he speaks to him, he says, as a man speaks to a man. He is a meek and faithful man in all that I do. And he performs or beholds the very form of God. God points out the unique character as well as the unique ministry of Moses as he serves as a mediator between God and man. He speaks directly with God. He's the one who beholds. He's the one who has to cover his face with a veil because the people could not look on his face because of the glory of God that shined on it. Remember that as we went through the book of Exodus uh, last year or year before. He goes, God asks him then a simple question in the second part of verse 8. When he says, why then? Why then, knowing who Moses is and my special, unique relationship, why are you then not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Why were you not afraid? In essence, he puts both Miriam and Aaron in their place. He snuffs out their jealousy and envy and says, you have no reason 
for these attitudes, for this heart condition. How does one now claim, uh, counter the claim of God? Who can stand before God? What was Miriam Aaron to say to this? I'm sure they're speechless. Probably shaking in their sandals. Wishing that they could take those words back. Have you ever felt that way? I'm sure you have. Most of us have. What could they say in response? In verse 9, we read this. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And he departed. His anger was kindled against them. The fourth observation is actually one of mercy. It's one of judgment, but it's also one of mercy. As Miriam pays the price of her sinful attitude, of her jealousy, of her envy, God determined that a stern rebuke was not enough. It was not enough just to rebuke her with words. But we see that he strikes her with leprosy. Verse 10. And when the Lord departed and the cloud removed from the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam and behold, he saw that she was leprous. Now, leprosy is a name for a host of different skin conditions. You might remember this from Leviticus from last year. And some were worse than others. There's the type of leprosy in which you would, it would eat away your skin and then your nerves and, and eventually it would cause some to death. We think of the New Testament. Unclean, unclean, unclean. You could not uh, uh, be within the camp and you would have to shout those words. People would not come around you. They would avoid you. But Miriam's skin condition was like a flakiness of skin. It was white and very flaky. It says that white like snow or like you might find on a newborn baby in which it's, it looks like he's flaking and shedding. This punishment led to Aaron's repentance and a cry which is, is ironic to his younger brother to mediate on their behalf to God. Look at verse 11. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly. Here's the repentance and have sin. That's what repentance is. It's understanding the foolishness and the sinfulness of your heart. He goes, let her not be as one who is dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And demonstrating the trueness of his meekness and rejecting any temptation to hold a grudge or to seek vengeance, Moses takes pity, and his heart is broken for both his brother and mainly for his sister, and he cries out to the Lord for her healing in verse 13. Oh God, please heal her, please. What a wonderful words of one who could seek vengeance, of one who could say, listen, they were complaining against me to God. But yet as a unique minister, one who speaks to God face to face, mouth to mouth, what does he do? He pleads for those who showed themselves to be his enemy. He says a prayer to them, prayer for them. God, please, healer, please. God heals hears and heals her with a caveat that's found in verse 14. It's assumed that the Lord heals her. But he also said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? 
Let her be shut outside the camp for seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam is shut outside the camp in verse 15 for seven days, and the people did not set out to march until she was brought back in. Then we see the people in verse 16 begin their journey once again. Though she's healed from leprosy, she still must follow the law and all of its requirements to be sent outside the camp for seven days, then to present herself back to the high priest. Now to be shut outside the camp to you and I must say, okay, that's not too bad, but you must remember to be shut out from the camp meant that she was outside the protection and the provision of God's covenant law towards her people. The people would not have been able to approach her. They would not have been able to help her, to touch her. But yet in his mercy, God heals her. And he has the camp wait for her, for her full cleansing before leading them out again. So in these past two chapters, you and I have seen the consequences of our hearts that are filled with complaints and grumblings and jealousy. This passage serves once again as an example for our instruction. Remember, that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians And this incident here serves as a witness to warn people against a heart that complains against the providence and provision of a holy God. It also warns us against a heart that harbors jealousy against one another. And it also shares with us the uniqueness of Moses' ministry as a mediator between God and and his chosen people. Now, any Israelite that either was there in the camp at the time or had heard or read of this account afterwards would have understand its clear meaning. Jealousy is not good. Understand the uniqueness of who Moses was. But what about you and I today? How do you and I understand this passage 4,000 years later from a bunch of ancient tribe? in a land far, far away. How are we to read this account? How does this serve as examples for our instruction? Well, I want to share with you three things here. First, we need to take a moment to consider the dangerous and devastating heart attitude of jealousy. I want to bring your attention to the monitor. One broken clock preacher commented that jealousy is a debt that says, God owes me. God owes me. That's really, truly what jealousy is. It's a hard attitude that believes that God, and you can leave that up there for a minute if you would. It's a hard attitude that believes that God has not been fair to them. Instead of celebrating the good gifts that God has given to themselves and others, its little brother envy provokes jealousy to raise its ugly head and protest against its creator. You see, jealousy is exposed in our hearts when you and I complain or protest that its life is not fair. It's not fair that they receive this and I do not. We we protest and complain that we work just as hard as someone else or we also deserve a nice house or clothes and cars and, and our kids are just as good as their kids. Or if I was taller, stronger, better looking, better communicator and smarter. These are the types of ways that Jealousy is exposed in our heart. You see, this is the main problem. You want something, but you didn't get it. James 4.1 says, why is there quarrels and divisions? It's because you do not have and you want. 
And jealousy is saying that God owes me. He didn't give me what I think I deserve. And see, so what you're doing is you're putting a debt and says, God, you owe me this. You gave it to them. You need to give it to me. This is what Miriam and Aaron are doing. We ought to have just what he had. He's our younger brother. He's only here because of us. Now you may ask, well, why is jealousy dangerous? Because many times people don't even know you're jealous. It's a condition of the heart. And you and I have been very good at masking our hearts, even in our attitudes and our actions. You may be sitting right next to someone today and you're jealous of them, or there's others that you're jealous. And you don't even know it. So why is it dangerous? Well, it raises insecurity in your heart. Satan uses this to drive a wedge into God's plan for fellowship and loving each other. How can you love and fellowship if you're jealous of another brother or sister in Christ? You see this right here in Numbers 12. You won't be able to love like God wants you to. You celebrate when they fail. You're never satisfied because there's always someone else that is better or gets something more than you do. Jealousy is dangerous because it shapes our attitudes towards other people. And jealousy becomes resentment and bitterness and it resides in our hearts and it churns until it corrupts. The irony is, this is the thing, the irony is, is that people that we are jealous of cannot do a thing to remedy it. That's why it's a debt that says God owes me because there's nothing that you can do, Bob, to make me taller, tall like you or to give me a head of hair like, well, like, I was going to say Randy, I was looking there, but like Gary, it's just not going to happen. There is nothing. I could be jealous of what you have, but there is nothing you can do it, but yet it affects our relationships. And here's the other ironic thing. You and I think it's a people issue because it focuses, like Miriam Aaron, on a person. But in reality, just about the complaint last week, it's actually a direct charge against the character of God as we doubt his goodness, his love, and his word. And in our hearts, though we may not say it, may we not think it, we have a debt towards God and we're saying, God, you owe me something better. A career, a house, children, a life, whatever it may be. And there may be some of you today that's harboring that in your heart today. And it's finding itself. It's being stirred by Satan. Now I may say, but when I look at her, Miriam, it seems so drastic that God does. Trevin, Trevin Wax, who is a pastor and a writer, he tweeted this out last week and I thought it was appropriate. He says, the heinousness of sin, the heinousness, I just like saying that word, of sin lies not so much in the nature of the sin committed. So listen to this. The, the terribleness of your sin is not so much the sin that you have committed. 
And this is the problem that you and I struggle with. You may be struggling with pornography. You might be struggling with, a, with an angry heart. You might be struggling with, with greed. And so it comes at you and you think about that and you think it's so heinous. God could never forgive me. But the problem is it's not the nature of the sin that we commit, but it's the greatness. Listen to this. It's the greatness of the person sinned against. And so when you and I harbor jealousy and it plays out in our heart and then it moves itself into our actions, it's not about a person, it's about God. So why was Miriam's, Miriam deserved? She deserved death, by the way. But God in mercy just gave her leprosy. And even then, for just a moment. And then shut her outside the camp. It's because it was against the person. So when you harbor jealousy, it's not just something in your heart that says, oh, I wish I was like that. Oh, I wish this. It's against the providence and the provision of God. What does Psalms 139 say? That it's God who created us and put our members together. You may say, but my circumstances, you don't understand. I've been struggling all my life to rub two nickels together. Oh, I just wish I was like them or that God would give me more money. But again, you're putting a charge against the goodness and love and the word of God. You and I must understand that. Miriam and Aaron believed that they were just protesting against Moses, but in truth, it was against the most holy God. It is the same for you and I, for you and me. When we harbor jealousy, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the father of lights in which all good gifts come. It's a debt that says, God owes me. Turn to James chapter 3. The half-brother of Jesus, James, who probably more than most knew about jealousy. Could you imagine being the younger brother of Jesus? Could you imagine you have Jesus as your older brother? Why don't you eat all your vegetables like Jesus? Why can't you do well in school like Jesus? Why can't you listen like Jesus? You can imagine why his brothers and sisters did not believe in him while he was here on the earth. You can understand why they thought he was crazy and mad. They were waiting for Jesus to fail. But look at James chapter 3 verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Look at that word. We're going to see it again. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but in a line did. It comes, it is earthly, unspiritually, and what? Demonic. That's what jealousy is. It's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Hence why God called a family meeting very quickly. He was not going to let it spread. But the wisdom that comes from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness and sown in peace by those who make peace. Jealousy works against peace. So that was consideration of what jealousy is. It's a debt that says that God owes me. Secondly, let's consider the hard attitude of meekness of the life and the character of Moses. You might have heard of the phrase, don't mistake my meekness 
for weakness. I couldn't find the way, by the way, the source of who first said that, though what I found is Al Capone said something very similar. He said, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. But it does have a ring of truth. Pastor John MacArthur writes that probably the least admired quality in America is meekness. And I don't know about you, but you can turn on any news station and see that meekness is something that people think is weak. It's not a virtue that most people say we need to have. I would agree with this assessment. Meekness is truly a misunderstood character quality. Andrew Whitman writes this. He says, The Greek historian Plutarch was the first to put pen to paper in the recording of the ancient Spartan warrior society. Think of that. The Spartan warrior society. 300. These, these are men, men, right? They're warriors. And he used that word in his writing where we get the word meekness. And he would call them meek men. Now, when you and I think of Spartan warriors, probably the last thing you are to think of is men that are meek. Now, we're thinking of men that are kicking people into wells, right? And say, take that, come and get me. But the modern use of meekness is very different from how the term original, original meaning. See, Plutarch's usage signifies the ability to control yourself. That's what meekness is. It's strength under control. It's emotional, your passionate reactions. It's being able to control those. And that ability is the result of training. You see, meekness is the ability to easily manage strength and force. Hence why Moses didn't call down fire on his brother and sister, which he could. He didn't call for them to be put in chains. He didn't call for them to be executed. He was meek. He used his, he didn't seek to vindicate himself. Weakness is, is, a la, is the lack of, is, uh, I'm sorry, weakness, and most people think, is a lack of strength and force. However, it's not. Scripture has several positive things to say about meekness. Look here on the screen. You'll see several in Psalms 37. It says, The meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundant peace. Isaiah, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Matthew 5, 5, repeating Matthew 37, 11, says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You see, meekness, not jealousy, is a virtue that all of us should aspire to. And it's a skill that you and I should endeavor to acquire. Now, Numbers chapter 12 serves to contrast the character and heart of Moses with those of his two siblings. Jealousy versus meekness. One brings God's condemnation and punishment and the other brought vindication and blessings. Clearly, this passage points out to all who will read and hear it that you and I should desire the meekness of Moses. But we should also remember that Moses points actually to a greater reality. He is just a type. He's the promise of a prophet that's greater than Moses was promised in Deuteronomy. When God says he will raise for you up a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him, he says, you are to listen. He's saying there is one greater than I. Now, you and I know who that is. That prophet is Jesus. Turn to Colossians once again, or not once again, but turn to Colossians chapter 1. 
Paul writes of this prophet, he writes of Jesus in verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, if you would please. In this scripture, in this scripture, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we get this beautiful picture of who Christ is. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Yet even of Jesus, of this one who is the image of God, it was written that he too was a meek man. Like Moses, he did not open his mouth to defend himself against his accusers but he waited for the divine vindication of his father. Like Moses, he pleads for mercy for those who were once against him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even today, Jesus is in heaven saying, Father, heal them, please. Please. Scripture calls us to imitate Christ. This is what the word Christian means. It means little Christ. Again, let us go back to Scripture's. Paul referenced Christ in 2 Corinthians, writes, I, my Paul, my, my Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Looking at the monitor to the church of Colossae, he challenges them to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and what? Meekness and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, what are we to do? Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. James, in his letters to the Christian Jews, commands them to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Pastor John MacArthur points out that pride has been redefined in America culture as a virtue. We're to be prideful. It's all about how many likes we have. It's about how many shares that we have. It's all about how many people we can draw to ourselves to lift ourselves up. It's amazing that most people's desire today is to be an influencer. Why? So others can look at us. And we watch them and we're jealous and desire to be like them, like their body, like their lifestyle and what they have. The strong, the beautiful, the powerful, the intelligent and the privileged, he writes, take every opportunity to put themselves 
forward. Politicians manifest pride in speeches and debates. Entertainers glamorize pride in their movies and their lifestyles. Educators teach pride by emphasizing self-esteem and making every child a winner, whether they are or they are not. Sports icons reinforce pride as the price to greatness or the path to greatness. Yet John MacArthur goes on to write, listen, yet the greatest person, the greatest person who ever lived was a meek and humble man. One who said, learn from me, for I am gentle, meek, and humble in the earth. Jesus exemplified meekness during his first advent, during his first coming, even as he ministered in the power of God, born in a lowly stable, riding on a donkey. Those who follow him will also demonstrate meekness or a gentleness. Gentleness and meekness are synonyms as the fruit of a spirit-filled life. He goes on to say, like Christ, the gentle, meek person does not defend himself. That's because he has died to self. And I read something earlier this morning. It's, it's really apropos that he did. Is that it says, denying oneself is forgetting oneself. Forget your dreams. Forget your aspirations. You're to deny all that and to follow him. But you and I haven't forgotten ourselves. We believe that God owes us. And we want what God owes us. He says he were to die to self and therefore do not worry. Don't worry about the insults that come from your friends, the ridicule for following Christ or from the world, the material loss that we may suffer, or even personal injury. The believer who embraces meekness knows that in himself he does not deserve defending and that in the long run all of his possessions are not worth fighting for. And that sense, gentleness is the opposite of violence and vengeance. For some, meekness leads to suffering. He says, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But there is triumph for the meek, even in suffering. For in all these things, we are overwhelmingly, we conquer through him. Who loves us. He goes on to write, meekness is a path worth, fo- worth following. It may not lead you to be spot on American, e- a spot on American Idol or Survivor. You may not win a political campaign, but you'll find the reward of God is yours in abundance. For Jesus promised, blessed are the gentle, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What emotion is stronger in your heart today? Jealousy or meekness? Which one defines you this morning? What bitterness or resentment are you holding in your heart against another brother and sister of Christ or or brother and sister in life or someone else? In what way do you believe that God owes you whether you think that way or those words are being used? In the words of Elsa, This is my second or third Disney quote. Let it go. Let it go. Forget about it. You have two choices. On one hand, you can be like Miriam and Aaron, who harbor 
resentment against God's providence and provision in your life. Or on the other hand, you could be like Moses and like Jesus, who humbly accepted the Father's will for their life and gave their lives to serve others. Let you and I embrace the strength and find found in meekness. Excuse me, let us embrace the strength found in meekness and a gentle heart. Let us not harbor jealousy, but let us look to serve and love those who God has called us to. With every head bowed and every head closed as the worship team comes up, I'm going to ask the elders that they could very quickly just come up at the end of the service. They'll be here for prayer. I want to encourage you. What is your heart like today? Do not let bitterness and resentment reside in it against a brother and sister, but fight against it. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you that you gave us Numbers 12 as an example for our instruction. And Father, we see the sin and destruction that jealousy and pride has in the heart of one who harbors it. Lord, let us not find ourselves that we may not speak against your goodwill and your goodness towards us. Let us not doubt that. And show us that that's truly what jealousy is. Expose it in our hearts this morning. Let us not walk away and forget this message, but let it just dive deep into it and bury it in there and let it do the work that the Spirit has. And Father, may we respond like Aaron, who recognizes the foolishness of our actions and attitudes and the sin against you. And would you hear us and heal us and Father, we thank you for the examples of Moses and of Jesus who showed us what meekness is and what it's like. Make us gentle a spirit that you may be glorified and that we may enjoy your goodness towards us in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to encourage you next week. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.